All right, take a Bible. You can open your copy of the Scriptures to 2 Samuel chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4. We're not going to read all of those three chapters, but we're going to jump around and hit some of the high points and uh, do our best to cover the storyline here. How many of you know who Zeruiah is? Just off the top of your head, Mark and I were talking Jeopardy. That could be a great final Jeopardy question. Zeruiah. Zeruiah is David's sister, one of King David's sisters. Um, She is not actually in this story, but her kids are in this story. And her kids sort of pick up a nickname, uh, the sons of Zeruiah. It's unique in the ancient world that they would pick up a nickname uh, after their mother's name and not their father's name. And scholars have all sorts of speculation about why that may be the case. Maybe their father had passed away. Maybe David was very close with uh, this particular sibling. But we're talking about David and Zeruiah, in particular the sons of Zeruiah. So just start with me thinking about temptation. All people face temptation. Peter says uh, in his letter that there is an adversary, the devil, He prowls around like a roaring lion, and he is seeking people to devour. Temptation is going to come looking for you. You can think about the book of James. James puts a different spin on temptation. He doesn't locate the danger out there. He locates the danger in here. And he says, we are all led away by our passions and our desires and our wicked, idolatrous lusts. That's the problem. Not so much out there, but in here. So between temptation coming to look for you out there and temptation originating within your heart, we're all going to face temptation. We face different temptations depending on your situation in life, depending on your age, depending on your circumstances. But I think one temptation that is common across generations, across cultures, across uh, lots of different people is the temptation to think If only I could get to a different life stage or situation, everything would be much better. And that's a never-ending temptation. Never ends. So it starts with you're right out of college and you say, man, if I could just get a job and make some real money, things would be so much better. Where can I do that? I can do that in the Permian Basin. I'm going to move to... West Texas and work in the oil field because I, I want that paycheck. And those people get out here and immediately the temptation becomes, if only I could get out of this place and be somewhere else, then everything would be better. People think, uh, if only I could get married. If I could just get married. I just, I want to be married so bad to this person or that person or to any person. Life would be better. And then many people get married and find themselves thinking, if only I could be married to a different person. Things would be so much better. This person is, is not suiting me, is not uh, who I thought that they were. And so the, the, the game continues. Sometimes people think, if only I could have children. If I could just have kids, if I could only have grandkids, maybe just those kids, man, I really, really want that. That would make life better. And then many of you who have kids find yourselves thinking, if only I could get my kids out of my house 
life would be amazing. And so it never ends. You understand this. You've experienced this sort of thing. And tonight we're looking at an episode in David's life. We're going to go down a long, meandering, winding road to get there, okay? But it's a season, overall, it's a season of David's life where he was probably tempted to start to wrestle with this idea of, now that I've got to this stage of life, isn't everything supposed to be better? Okay? Think about his life in recent years. He's been a fugitive. He's lived on the run. He's been running from Saul. He's been ducking in and out of caves. He's had opportunities to kill Saul, and he's passed on those opportunities and maybe later regretted that to some degree or another. He's been a wanted man, a man on the run, a fugitive. And the temptation in all of those wandering, running years for David, the temptation was to think, if only I could get away from Saul. If only God would do something to get rid of Saul. If only Saul weren't the king. If only Saul would quit hunting hunting me down, hunting, hunting for my life like I'm an animal, then life would be so much better. And look, in this story, all of those things come to fruition. Saul's gone. That thing that David has had in the back of his mind of once this happens... I'll be able to take a breath and relax. He gets to that stage of life, and then he realizes Saul's not the only problem out there. There are other problems out there, and in this story, they're called the sons of Zeruiah. So here's a quote from Peterson that just sort of sets the stage. He says, here's the situation. Saul is dead. Jonathan is dead. David has lamented these deaths magnificently. And last week we talked about David lamenting. We're going to see more of that tonight. So he has lamented the the deaths of, of Saul and Jonathan. In his lament, he's at his Davidic best. Believing and reverent, generous and passionate. He's also king. The long-ago act of anointing by Samuel to the kingship is now out in the open. King Saul no longer obstructs the way. David, after a decade of being hunted down in the wilderness, living on the defensive, is now in a position of strength. He's 30 years old and the ruler. The tables have turned. He's no longer running, hiding, living by his wits. He's in charge. He's reached that stage of life he's been thinking about. If I could just get there, now he's there. And now he realizes, I still have problems. So we're going to look at some of those problems in 2 Samuel 2, 3, and 4. And I want to preface it by saying this. The things we're about to talk about feel very much to me like a Maury Povich, Jerry Springer episode. I mean, it's crazy. And I don't know that I remember teaching on a passage of Scripture that has so many characters that we are unfamiliar with. I found myself studying these chapters this week, and I just had to stop. And I say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who is this person again? Who, who is this? Even today, as I was going through my notes and looking at things, I thought, you got the wrong name here. You got this guy's name, and it's supposed to be this guy, and you got to get him turned around. So I'm, I'm giving you two disclaimers. One, there's a lot of names, and at some point, I'm going to say one of them wrong. So give me a little grace in that. There's a lot of names. Secondly, I'm just warning you that these stories are strange. They're strange stories 
David is really not at the center of any of the stories that we're about to talk about, but they all impact David, and that's where we're going to end up talking about. So here's how I want to start. As I was studying this, to get it all straight in my brain, I said, I need a list of who these people are so that I can be clear on the moving parts before I get into the story. I had a list on your notes. It took up way too much space, so I took it off, but I'm going to put it on the screens. Okay? If you want to jot down names on the side, you can jot down these names. I just want to sort of run through some of these personalities and try to get us all on the same page. Okay? Here we go. Character number one, David. Starting easy, all right? He's the anointed king of Israel. He is the reigning king of Judah. The distinction is important at this point. He's been anointed to lead the whole nation. He's only leading Judah. His sister was Zeruiah. His nephews, Zeruiah's sons, were Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Tracking with me? Okay, next character, Abner. Abner is the commander of Saul's army. I'm, I'm totally spoiling the plot line here, but that's intentional. Okay, He kills Asahel, and he was killed by Joab and Abishai. Got it? Okay, next. Ishbosheth. That's a mouthful. Ishbosheth. He was the son of Saul who became king of Israel when Saul died. He was killed by Banah and Rechab, who were brothers. Okay, next. Joab. He's the commander of David's army. He's the son of Zeruiah, which means he's David's nephew which means he's the brother of Abishai and Asahel. So you got these three brothers at the center of the story, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. He assassinated Abner with his brother Abishai. Next, Abishai. This is a little redundant, but this is going to help you keep it straight. Son of Zeruiah, nephew of David, brother of Joab and Asahel, assassinates Abner with his brother Joab. The next brother is Asahel. He's the son of Zeruiah, nephew of David, brother of Joab and Abishai. He was killed by Abner. Next, Michael. This is just a random name thrown in here, right? Michael, David's first wife, who, while David was gone, had been given in marriage to somebody else. David still thought of this woman as his wife. She had been given in marriage to somebody else, and his name was Paltiel. I think there's one more. Banah and Rechab, captains in Ishbosheth's army, they assassinate Ishbosheth and they were killed by David's men. You ready to go? It's good stuff. Here we go. Here we go. After the death of Saul, David reigned in Judah and Ishbosheth reigned in Israel. That's sort of setting the stage for what we're about to look at. David is reigning in Judah. Ishbosheth is reigning in Israel. 2 Samuel chapter 2, you can just track along with me, verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, 
And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. The idea is they move into this town and the village and the surrounding area and the countryside. That sort of becomes the capital. The men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. So he is now the official reigning king of the tribe of Judah. Jump down and look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. So David's king over Judah. Ishbosheth is made king over everything else. It says that Saul's son was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David, and the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Swindoll gives us a nice, helpful summary here. I I like how he words this. He says, David's about 30 years old when Saul dies. He doesn't immediately march into Jerusalem. We're going to talk about that in an upcoming Wednesday night to take over the whole nation. Instead, following God's instruction, he goes to Hebron. He has a limited reign over the people of Judah for seven and a half years. He doesn't complain. He isn't anxious. He has learned to wait on God. You can imagine how tempting it would have been for David to say, I have waited long enough to be the king over the whole thing. That's what I was anointed to be king over. I don't want Judah. I want the whole thing. God says, right now you go to Hebron. You're going to be king over Judah. David is fine with that. He trusts the Lord. And there is a long period of waiting where Saul is now out of the way and David still is not recognized as king over the whole nation. Just to set this up for you, Joab is David's general. That's his nephew, and Abner was Ishbosheth's general. You can read about that in chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Here's what you need to know about Abner and Joab. Okay? Abner is a politician. He's in it for Abner. Whoever's in power, that's who he's going to cozy up to. If it changes or the, the scales tilt one way or the other, he's flexible, he's bendable, He's going with whatever will benefit him. That's Abner. Joab is a killer. He is a bad dude. He is the kind of guy who is tough, and he knows he's tough, and everyone else knows he's tough, and you don't want to cross him. You do not want to end up on his bad side. Those are the two guys leading these two respective armies. If you look at 2 Samuel 2, we'll just read a few verses, verse 12. Abner, the son of Ner, the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. Remember that place. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon, and they sat down. The one on the one side of the pool, and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, check this out, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Let me explain to you what's happening in this scene. This is where they're at. You can go visit this site today. It's the pool of Gibeon. Okay, And you can see it sort of from the 
the ground level looking that way on the left, and there's a little fence around it, and it's uh, a well dug down. And then you can see an aerial shot. There's people walking down the stairwell right there. That's the location where they're at. And you got one army on one side, and you got the other army on the other side, and you got the two commanders, Abner and Joab. And they're there to fight. But instead of just turning everyone loose, they look at each other and they say, let's have a little game. Here's the game they come up with. You pick 12. We'll pick 12. We'll make a little arena. We'll let the 12 fight, and let's see who wins. So that's what they do. Now, i got to tell you, this is middle school boy heaven right here. This is the greatest. When I was in grade school and middle school, I loved professional wrestling. And my favorite professional wrestling event of the year was when they set up two rings with a cage over the top and they picked teams and they all got in there and just beat the snot out of each other. And when you're a grade school boy or a middle school boy, you think this is fantastic. Nothing could make me happier than watching these guys just beat the snot out of each other. Or so you thought that's what was happening. So that's basically what's happening except it's real life. Okay? MMA is wildly popular in our culture. Just imagine a, an MMA pay-per-view, 12 on 12, no referee, last man standing wins. That's what we're doing. We're putting 12 in with 12, and we're turning them loose to see what happens. This is such a strange story. They turn them loose. They start to fight. They all kill each other. And you would love to know a little more detail, like, how did it happen with the last two? How did, I mean, you get down to two or one on two, or how did they all die? But they all die in the fight. And when they all die in the fight, the whole thing turns into one massive fight. So here's how it shakes out. Twelve on twelve, they both die. Then all of the armies rush in and fight each other. Here's the casualties when it's all said and done. Judah loses 20. Israel loses 360. That is lopsided. You look at those numbers and you say, man, Judah really won a great victory. They came out ahead. Too bad for Israel. There's just one problem. One of the 20 was David's nephew. And there's a part in the battle where David's nephew Asahel is chasing Abner and Abner turns around at some point and he takes his spear and he chunks it right through his heart. And he kills him. Asahel's brother Joab picks up the fight and he's chasing Abner. And they, in the midst of running from each other in the conflict, they have a little bit of reason to say, hey, let's just call this off. They call the whole thing off. Enough blood has been spilled. Everyone goes home. They bury their dead. They have funerals. Think about the number of funerals they had. After this battle, 32 in Judah, 372 in Israel, that's a lot of funerals. Everyone goes home. For a moment, you think that cooler heads are going to prevail, but I told you, you do not want to be on Joab's bad side, okay? So we just look at 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, sort of a summary of how it all ended. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul, that's Ishbosheth, became weaker and weaker. 
Episode 2. Abner's loyalty moved to David. You remember I told you he was a politician. Moved to David when Ishbosheth questioned him about Rizpah. And I realize already, I laid for you, I laid out all those characters. I'm already throwing names at you I didn't tell you about. I understand that. Here's what happens. Back in Israel, Ishbosheth is just like his dad. He's paranoid and suspicious of everybody. And Ishbosheth comes face to face with Abner, and he accuses Abner, his general, of sleeping with one of his father's concubines, whose name was Rizpah. The text is really a little bit vague on whether it happened or didn't happen. Either way, Abner did not like the accusation. And when he's accused of doing this treasonous thing, right, trying to, to take essentially one of the queens, you might think of it in, that, in those terms, as his own wife, he basically says to Ishbosheth, the king in Israel, I'm switching sides, Bubba. If you're going to accuse me of that kind of nonsense, I'm throwing in with David and I'm done with you. And you can look at what the text says in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 11. Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Ishbosheth has really crossed a line he can't go back across. He's opened his mouth. He's accused this man of something immoral. He takes offense in it. He bows up against Ishbosheth, and Ishbosheth is terrified to push back or to challenge him, so he just says absolutely nothing. So Abner has essentially switched sides when it comes to his loyalty. Next episode, David demands, remember David is getting stronger and stronger. House of Saul is getting weaker and weaker. David demands that Ishbosheth return Michael, his wife, and Abner uses the situation to make a covenant with David. David sends word to Israel and he says, hey, I want my wife back. Saul gave her to me first. Then when I was on the run, he gave her to somebody else. I want her back as my wife. Ish-bosheth says, Abner, would you please take her back? Do you remember what the problem was with Miss Michael? She's got a husband, second husband, another husband, however you want to phrase it. She's married, and his name is Paltiel. Abner shows up, the general, and says, you're coming with me. And there's this sad story. I'll let you read it. He takes Michael, and Paltiel just follows behind them crying. And on the one hand, you kind of laugh at the situation. And on the other hand, you say, that's his wife. I mean, she was just given to him, and he, you know, he didn't ask for her to be taken away. And he's just kind of following along, moping and crying. And at some point, Abner looks back and says, stop it. And you wish sometimes the Bible would include, like, the tone that they used. You know what I mean? Like, what, what kind of tone did you use? What was the volume level with that? The text says... 2 Samuel 3, verse 16, her husband went with her weeping after her all the way to Baharim. Then Abner said to him, go, return. And he returned. She comes back and she's given back to David. While he's there, he takes the opportunity to make a covenant with David. Essentially, he's handing off this woman to David. Look down at verse 20. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Now, do you find that strange? I know we've talked about a lot of names, but Abner is the man who threw a spear 
through the heart of David's nephew. You tracking with the drama here? And he shows up now with David's first wife, and David throws a feast for him and all his men. Verse 21, Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord the king that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. This is the number two guy in all of Israel saying, I'm defecting from Ishbosheth, and I'm throwing in with you, and I'm going to get all the people of Israel to make you the king. I know that I murdered your nephew in battle or killed him in battle, but I'm in with you. I'm on your side. I don't want nothing to do with the house of Saul. David gives him a feast. They enter into this covenant, and he sends him away in peace. Next episode happens almost immediately. Joab and Abishai assassinate Abner. The brothers find out that their uncle, the king, allowed this enemy into Hebron, threw him a feast, made a covenant, sent him away in peace, and the brothers are still mad about Asahel. And they essentially come to David and say, that was your chance. You had him dead to rights. We want him dead. The blood of our brother is on his hands. And they're furious. And David says, no, I've sent him away. He's with us. And they leave and they say, we'll take matters into our own hands. And they assassinate him in the gates of the city. David responds with grief. There's a little bit of a twist here for Abner. And anger for the sons of Zeruiah. Just a strange situation. We'll just read a few verses here. 2 Samuel 3, starting in verse 26. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner. They brought him back from the cistern of Sarah. David did not know about it. When Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord, for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner, may it fall on the head of Joab and upon all his father's house, and may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or is leprous or holds a spindle or falls by the sword or lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. And just... Look how David mourns and laments Abner. David said to Joab and all the people who were with him. And that verse is fascinating. He singles out Joab. And essentially, he's telling Joab, you are going to participate in what's about to happen. Again, you'd like to hear the tone. But he says it to Joab and to all the people, tear your clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourn before Abner. And Joab is thinking, I just murdered that guy. And David says, you're going to lament him. Tear your clothes. Start crying. We're going to a funeral, and you're going. They buried Abner at Hebron. The king lifted up his voice and wept at the the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. Everything we said about lament last week applies to this passage. 
is David's lamenting again. The king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. You understand in verse 34, he calls his own general wicked. A wicked man murdered you. You weren't looking for a fight, and he took advantage of the situation, and he murdered you. All the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. David swore, saying, God do so to me and more also. If I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down, the people took notice of it and it pleased them as everything the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king, These men, pay attention to this, these men, the sons of Zeruiah. He could have said Joab and Abishai. But this is like when your mom is really mad at you and she says, you're your father's son, right? Or when you read in the Bible like the the story of the prodigal son and the older brother sees his brother back and it's not his brother, it's his father's son. There's creating some distance there. He says, These sons of Zeruiah are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. You keep reading in the biblical text, every time David refers to the sons of Zeruiah, he throws in a little Hebrew phrase, and in English it's translated like this, What do I have to do with you? It's basically... Basically, David's way of saying, you're a bunch of idiots. You guys are killing me right now. You are mean. You are spiteful. You are vengeful. You are bloodthirsty. And I am keeping you close. Do you notice what he said in verse 39? I was gentle today. He's talking about how he treated Joab and Abishai. I was gentle with them. They're my nephews. And I'm going to be patient with them. But these are bad dudes, and he's distancing himself from them in some sense. One last episode as if all that were not enough. Two of Ishbosheth's soldiers assassinate him, and they take his head to David. This is Banah and Rechab, two other brothers. They think they can earn favor with the king if they assassinate Ishbosheth and take his head to David. They walk in. I mean, you can imagine the scene. They walk in with his head. And David essentially says, fellas, I had Saul dead to rights more than once. If that's what I wanted, I would have done that sort of thing a long time ago. And he looks at his men and he tells his men to put these two men to death. And the men who deliver Ishbosheth's head end up dying in David's presence. You can read that story in chapter 4. Okay, now take a breath. That's weird, right? That's just strange stuff. In my personal Bible reading this morning, I was in the book of Leviticus. And I'll just be honest with you. When you get to Leviticus in your personal Bible reading, there's parts where you just say, this is tough sledding, man. Like, okay, they killed the animal. I get it. And you did it for this one. You did it for this one. You did it. I mean, you, sometimes you read the Bible and you just think, why is that in there? You read these stories and you think, 
What does that have to do with God? I mean, tell me, what do I learn about God from those stories? On the surface of it, you look at it and you say, that's just a bunch of, I mean, it's Jerry Springer and Maury Povich. I read it, I feel like I need to go take a shower. It's a mess. Look what Peterson says. We read page after page of this kind of thing and we think, what is this doing in the Bible? I don't want to read about jerks like Abner and Joab. I get enough of their kind in the newspapers and on television. I want good news. I want the David story. I want to read about Jesus. What the Bible needs is a good editor. Why waste good gospel ink on Abner and Joab? Then he says this. This is the context in the company in which God chooses to work out our salvation. Abner and Joab are also in the story, and the sooner we get used to it, the better. The main thing I want you to see when you look at these stories and how they relate to David is, this ought to feel a lot like real life for us. I'm This kind of mess. This kind of stuff that you just shake your head at and say, what in the world is happening? I mean, you could take the general plot lines of those stories and you could put them on the evening news or a, an evening sitcom or a soap opera or a Netflix special or whatever and that just fits right in with the kind of stuff that we hear about and watch about and read about and listen to all of the time. That's, that's just life. And I want you to notice what David is doing in the midst of all that mess, in the midst of all of it. With chaos on every side... David is working to build a kingdom. He's working to build a kingdom. He's not perfect in this season of life, but he's markedly different than the sons of Zeruiah and Abner. I'll give you a few examples, and I'm going to let you look these up. Number one, he's seeking guidance from the Lord. Guidance from the Lord. We've seen David in previous weeks go through long seasons of life where he's not praying, he's not talking to God, he's not asking God what to do. He's just on his own. He's trying to make it uh, the best of it by his own wits and abilities. And in this story, we read it earlier in chapter 2, he says, God, what do I do? Tell me what to do. God tells him what to do, and it's probably not exactly what he wants to hear, and he does it, and he doesn't go any further. So he's seeking guidance from God. Second, he's being generous to his people. There were some men who went and rescued the body of Saul and Jonathan after they'd been mutilated. And David shows kindness to them. He shows generosity to those people. Thirdly, he's raising a family. You can read about that in chapter 3. Now I'm going to throw in the disclaimer that he's making a lot of mistakes at the family level. There are some marriage issues and some parenting issues that are just unexcusable. We shouldn't try to excuse them. But he is raising a family in the midst of all of this. Fourthly, he's making peace with his enemies. That's so different than everything else we just read about. Everyone else in this turmoil is just out for revenge and blood, and I owe you this, and I'm not going to get over that, and, well, I remember what you did here. And David is making peace with his enemies. He's not looking to fight. He's not desiring to go out and kill more people just for the sake of killing them. He's making peace. Makes peace with Abner. Last, he's writing poetry and lamenting death. 
We talked about the importance of lament last week, so I won't rehash all of the things we said, but lamenting is important. It's important in the Old Testament. It's important today. This is just real life. David knows that he has a job to do, and he's trying to do it in the midst of all the chaos and turmoil that is just everyday life. One more quote. So many people quit reading the Bible or they repudiate it. They say things like this. I can't read the Bible, especially the Old Testament. Too much fighting, too much brutality. That's exactly why Christians do read it. We find God's purposes being worked out in the precise moral and political, social and cultural conditions that we wake up to each morning. It's a world of shabby morality, opportunist companions, religious violence, religious propaganda, and the many, many sons of Zeruiah that are too hard or too severe for us. Look, this is one of the beautiful things about the Bible, is when you read it, its heroes aren't sugar-coated. They're just presented warts and all. And even when those heroes have really great days and they're, they're really seeking the Lord and seeking to build His kingdom, you find them having to do it in circumstances that are very, very similar to ours. When you read this story about David and the sons of Zeruiah and all the drama that they cause here and into the future. It reminds me of one of the stories from Jesus' life. Jesus, the son of David, established a kingdom, even though he had to deal with his own sons of, of Zeruiah, they were the sons of thunder. It's almost just a parallel type story. And you can flip over and look at Mark chapter 10. We'll read a few verses from the gospel of Mark. Mark 10, verse 35. You say, finally, we're out of out of the blood and the guts and the violence and the, all of it. We're into the, the nice stuff, the loving stuff. Look at verse 35, Mark 10, 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And he said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant us to sit one at your right and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which, with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup I drink you will drink and with the baptism with which I'm baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right or my left is not mine to grant. It's for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And at that point you say, well, this sounds like Joab and Abner on repeat. I mean, these are the same guys who walked into a Samaritan village with Jesus and they didn't listen to his preaching. And when they walked out of the Samaritan village, James and John looked at Jesus and said, do you want us to nuke them right now? You want us to call down Sodom and Gomorrah? Do you want us to, to drop the, the atom bomb on this city? We'll do it. Just say the word, Jesus, we'll do it. And Jesus says, fellas, fellas, you're too severe. And now they come to Jesus, and they really haven't learned a thing, and they say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, we want you to put us in seat 1A and 1B in heaven. 
We want the power. We want the glory. We want all of it to be centered on us. Right? These are guys who can't see the big picture because they're so focused on themselves and their own small, little, tiny, selfish, petty agendas. No different than the sons of Zeruiah. Look how Jesus responds to them. He called them to him. Not just James and John, but the ten. James and John have their own issues. The ten are mad because James and John beat them to the punch. Jesus says, you know that those are who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. We're not going to be like all those other leaders. We're not going to be like all those people grasping for power. We're not going to be like all those other people who just do whatever it takes to get to the desired end. That's not how it's going to be. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. and Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And look what he says in verse 45. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. They want to blow up villages. And they want to argue about who gets the best seat in heaven. And Jesus just hits the timeout button and says, guys, that's not, that's not what I'm here to do. Jesus is essentially saying, I'm not here to destroy my enemies. I'm here to die for my enemies. I'm going to lay down my life as a ransom for those who are far from me, from those who are hostile to me. I'm not here to drop atom bombs. I'm here to die. To provide salvation. One last thought. This is, this is throughout the Bible, this idea. Christians believe God is working in the world even when everything around us appears to be ran by sons of Zeruiah. Or you could say sons of thunder. You see this theme repeated all the way through the scriptures. You see it in the book of Judges where the people have come out of, G, uh, out of Egypt and they've taken the promised land. There's this new generation who doesn't fear the Lord and everything just goes nuts in the book of Judges. And you read the book of Judges and you think, this is over. This story is done. These people are finished. And then you turn the page from Judges to Ruth and you realize, no, God's still at work. Right? The sons of Zeruiah are messing everything up, but God is at work behind the scenes in ways that you may not notice and may not initially see. You see the same thing during the exile, when the nation eventually gets kicked out of the promised land. Everyone thinks that's it. That's over. We had our land, we had our temple, it's gone, and the temple's flat, we're done. But even in that time, God's working through men like Daniel. He's working through people like Esther. The sons of Zeruiah are running the world. And God is still at work to bring about his purposes. You see it in this David story. Everyone in this kingdom is vying for power and control and murdering and cheating and lying and deceiving. It's chaos. And in the midst of it, God is using David to establish a kingdom. I think you experience this on a daily basis. I think you go to school, or you go to work, or you go to a family dinner, and you look around and you say, you people are crazy. 
mean, you've lost your ever-loving mind. What in the world are you thinking? What is going on? There's nobody I, I go to school with who loves the Lord. There's nobody in my office building who fears God. There's nobody in my family who gives a flying flip about church or any of it. It's just all sons of Zeruiah. And you need to be reminded in the midst of that, God is at work. It may not be obviously apparent. The sons of Zeruiah may get all the headlines, but God is still at work. That's what we just read in Mark 10. You got Jesus, and you got a group of 10 nobodies with him. And the nobodies really don't have a clue what's even going on. And Jesus has made some waves in his area, but the world rulers aren't paying attention to Jesus. The sons of Zeruiah are running the show. It's all chaos, it's all corruption, it's all ugliness. God's at work. It's quiet, it's subdued, it's behind the scenes, it's not what you would expect, but God's at work. I think you see this in churches at some level. I think sometimes we come to church and we, you look around and you just say, well, we're a bunch of misfits at best, on our best days. I mean, look at us. We just... It looks like a bunch of sons of Zeruiah. Everybody's grouchy this Sunday morning or people in my Sunday school class won't study their lesson. And Like, get with it, guys. Come on. And you just need to be reminded, and I need to be reminded in the midst of that, God's at work. You may not always see it. It may not always be front and center, but God's at work even when everything around us is run by the sons of Zeruiah. I think you certainly see this principle at play when you go home and you turn on the news. And I don't know what channel you turn on for the news, but it's all bad. It's bad from this perspective and that perspective, and it's just all bad. However you want to slice it, it's just bad. And you watch that and you say, what is happening in the world? I mean, what, in the, what is going on? This is where we're at really debunks the, the theory of evolution that we're getting better and better and some sort of higher, more sophisticated. We're just degenerating on all levels. And you look at that and you say, it's just sons of Zeruiah, all the talking heads, all the people in power, all sons of Zeruiah. What a mess. And in the midst of that, you just got to stop and remind yourself, there is nothing new under the sun. That's how it felt in the book of Judges. That's how it felt when David was king. The great King David had to deal with the exact same thing. That's what it felt like in the exile. That's what it felt like when Jesus was walking around Palestine with his disciples. That's what it felt like in the early church when people were lying about offerings and dropping dead in the worship service. That's what it feels like today. And the hope of the Christian is not ever that we are going to get all the right people in all the right places of power and everything is just going to be perfect. The hope of the Christian is that God is working in the world even when everything else appears to be run by sons of Zeruiah. That's our hope.